Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and each week I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Stories suggestive of reincarnation are not limited, whether geographically or culturally. They occur in all corners of the planet and among people of all cultures. There is, of course, more to reincarnation than memories. For reincarnation to actually have taken place, the consciousness of the foreign personality must have entered the body of the experiencing subject. In esoteric literature, this is known as the transmigration of the spirit or the soul. It is said to occur in the womb, perhaps already at conception or shortly afterward, when the rhythmic pulses begin what develops into the heart of the embryo. The spirit or soul of an individual does not necessarily migrate to another individual. Buddhist teachings, for example, tell us that the soul or spirit does not always reincarnate on the earthly plane and in a human form. It may not reincarnate at all, evolving to a spiritual domain from where it either does not return or returns only to fulfill a task it was to accomplish in its previous incarnation. But what concerns us here is the possibility that reincarnation could truly occur. Can the consciousness that was the consciousness of a living person reappear in the consciousness of another? In his book, The Power Within, British psychiatrist Alexander Cannon wrote that the evidence on this scope is too strong to be dismissed. For years, the theory of reincarnation was a nightmare to me, and I did my best to disprove it, and even argued with my trans subjects to the effect that they were talking nonsense. Yet as the years went by, one subject after another told me the same story in spite of different and varied conscious beliefs. Now, well over a thousand cases have been so investigated, and I have to admit there is such a thing as reincarnation. Tonight, my friends, backed by popular demand, I will cover over 10 more cases of claimed reincarnation. How many are true? How many are phony? Well, folks, as always, that's where you play your part and decide for yourself. Good morning, everyone. I hope that you're doing well wherever you are in the world. I hope that those of you that are stuck in lockdown right now are doing your best to cope. I can only imagine it can't be easy. It was very difficult here when we were in the fall going into winter. It's quite a bit different when you've got already early darkness and all the other things that winter brings, and then you're also on lockdown. So do your absolute best to hang in there, my friends. To everyone all over the globe who's been listening, Thank you so much. I was having a bit of a look through the stats yesterday. It's really amazing to see the width and the breadth of the audience. So thank you so much. You know, it's it's not just people in a few pockets. It's people all over the world, all over the U.S. I've got a huge listening in California, especially in Oakland. And I thank you very much for that. To all of the people all over, like I say, anyone who's taken the time to listen to my voice it really means the world to me, and I really do appreciate it. For those of you who have been the long-term supporters of the program and have always backed me, thank you so much. You know who you are. As I say, as we're going into the end of the year, I'm going to try and keep the introductions and the shout-outs brief, but trust me, I know who you are. I appreciate all your help. You know, it means the world to me. Thank you so much. As always, like I say, you know, I've, I've had a few podcasts that have really been supportive of the program and some other people as well. So again, you know, Scott, Matt, Dave at the Old 77, thank you so much. Noel and Nicole at the Quite Unusual podcast, thank you so much for your support and continuing to listen to my program. To the Xander and Stone podcast, thank you so much for giving me a shout out on your latest episode. Really meant a lot to me. And anyone else out there who I may be forgetting right now, I do apologize, but trust me, 
I'm very thankful and very appreciative for everything that everyone does to support me. So aside from that, folks, I've been well. I've had a bit of an on and off week as far as the program goes. So, you know, I've been working on the program behind the scenes, but I've taken a bit more me time this week to do some things like catch up on some programs I haven't watched, catch up on some podcasts. This time of year for me is difficult, and it may be for some of you. With Thanksgiving, my parents are gone, and all I have left really are memories of Thanksgiving and people who are no longer with us, and a few who are, but I don't get to see. So it can be difficult at times, and I'm sure it can be for some of you, but I just tend to try and remember those good memories, and I'm doing my best to just battle through it. Having the program, having a voice, having an outlet, and having your feedback really does help. So thank you so very much. Now, I do have one other very brief shout out to someone who's been one of the longest supporters of the program. Thank you so much, Harry, in North Carolina. I just wanted to wish you a happy birthday. I appreciate everything that you've done for me, everything you've done for the program. And I'm sorry I couldn't be there for your birthday, but it's great that you had family there and that you got to really spend some time with your loved ones. I hope the bourbon and the cigars were good. I wish that I could have had some, but maybe one day, my friend. So folks, on another note, we've got a very exciting run-up to the end of the year here on the Paranormal Sun. I've got some really great surprises for you. You may have seen on Instagram that I had a couple of posts about surprises, you know, or watch this space. Well, I'm pleased to announce to you that I've basically got the ability now to interview people remotely, record it, and put it up on the program. I've been doing some tests and trials with a few people who have really helped. As I say to Noel at the Quite Unusual Podcast, thank you so much for your help. And thank you so much, Russell, from Hangar 18 Radio. So folks, Russell and I have started doing an interview, which we will finish off, and you'll definitely have it by the end of this year to listen to Russell and I discuss again, you know, some of our favorite topics, UFOs and so forth. If there's anything on those episodes when I'm interviewing people that you would like to know, or you're just curious about, you know, drop a line, let me know. And on that note, as I say, you can reach me at theparanormalsun at gmail.com. All one word, no special characters, no podcast, just theparanormalsun at gmail.com. You can also get a hold of me on Instagram. You can follow me on Instagram. You can like and follow the Facebook page. And you can go over to www.theparanormalsun.com. And over there, I've started a new idea, something new that uh, Xander from the Xander and Stone podcast suggested to me. I've kind of repurposed my blog over there rather than just having it be something that's a copy and paste job from Instagram or Facebook. And what I'm going to do is once a month, at least, I'm going to get on there and just say, this is JT's consumption for November, December, etc. So some of the books I'm reading, maybe some of the programs I'm watching or listening to, you know, other podcasts, some of the pages I've enjoyed on Instagram, or some of the areas I'm calling some of this information from. And also some products, as I find products that are quite good, that I've enjoyed, or others that I know have enjoyed, I will be posting them up over there. If you haven't had a chance, just head over there to theparanormalsun.com, and you'll find these listings under the blog over there. Now, with all that being said, you know, the other ways that you can support the program, of course, whatever your platform is, you can like and give a review on the program. I can sit here and say, give me five star reviews, and that's great. But if you really aren't feeling it, you aren't feeling it. 
I've said a million times on this program that I'm not everyone's cup of tea. I'm not everyone's soup du jour. So if it's not something you enjoy, it is what it is. You know, I am the last person around that really likes to stifle people's free speech. So if you're feeling generous, aside from that, my friends, you can also drop a few bucks in the PayPal box on the website. You can support me through Patreon. You can also support me through Buy Me a Coffee, which is a new link that I've just set up on the website. And basically, on the Paranormal Sun website, you can just click on the little coffee icon or hot drink icon, and you can go over and buy a coffee. It's just another way of supporting and maybe giving a small donation if you find value in what I'm doing. Now, with all that having been said, folks, I haven't quite lined up what I'm going to do for Christmas and New Year's. As I said, when we get to episode 20 of season two, I will be having a break. Now, off the top of my head, I would say that that will be mid-January, so I'll probably just have a week off there, have a bit of a break. I will have to get out there, like I say, and go out and explore possibilities of finding some type of employment as the coffers are starting to get a bit bare here at Tower Studios. And again, I will do my absolute best to keep you updated with what happens if and when I go back out into the workforce. But short of some very generous donor who would rather have me do this full-time than work, there will come a time where the rubber hits the road and I have to go back out there and work. Uh, I don't get any sponsorships. I have one very generous patron that helps with some of the things that I couldn't afford otherwise. And really, folks, if it wasn't for those generous people, I wouldn't be able to bring the program to you right now because I know it might sound silly, but you know when there are other bills to be paid or ink, toner, paper, web hosting, all of that, well, the choice would be fairly clear for most of us. So with all that having been said, folks, like I say, just watch this space. There will be a few surprises coming up as we head into the Christmas season for you. A couple of things I think you will really enjoy, but I don't want to let the cat out of the bag too soon. With all that having been said and just covering over, you know, kind of those general show notes, you as my listeners, make sure you give yourself a pat on the back because without you, I wouldn't be able to keep doing what I do. You know, you really, as I say, you're the wind in the sails for me, and I really do appreciate all of your kind words and continuing to listen to the program. We will now get into the news of the damned. For those of you who may be new to the program, the news of the damned is my homage to Charles Fort who was really the very first person that really got me into the paranormal, the unexplained, the mysterious, and the Fortean. The term Fortean is in reference to Charles Fort. So he was a gentleman back in the early 1900s who started gathering some of these mysterious and unexplained items, like strange things falling from the sky, ghost ships, cryptids, UFOs, you name it. He started gathering all of these articles from newspapers and magazines around the world, and then he gathered them and would publish them in books. So Charles Fort referred to anything that science ignored or excluded as damned data. Therefore, the name of the segment is The News of the Damned. And every week, I try to bring you three, four, five articles that really fit into this area. Now, this week, we will go through four stories, four articles of the news of the damned. A couple of them are quite short. A couple of them are videos. And then we will finish off the U196 saga. So again, last week, as you would have remembered, it got very deep, very quick, and we went down a rabbit hole with speed. So this week, we will finish that off. And don't you worry, folks, in future, I will be covering more of basically what happened to the Third Reich, some of the potential other things that occurred that we're not told 
in general history, some of the secrets and little known facts, as well as some of the conspiracy theories out there. So again, folks, in future, I will cover that over. As I say, I have got a backlog of several hundred episodes worth of programming to cover for you. So as long as I can keep the lights on, and as long as I can find the time to do it, you don't have to worry about me running out of subject matter anytime soon. So folks, the first story here is from coasttocoastam.com. And this one is definitely under the banner of, we don't really need this in 2020. And this is a video and it says, watch Dybbuk Box from Aleister Crowley's House Opened. Well, I saw something like this on Instagram or Facebook earlier in the week. And uh, it was Twitter, actually. I just basically reposted it with the caption where I said, is this really what we need in 2020? So this one just says, a video posted to YouTube last month shows the opening of a mysterious box allegedly discovered under the floorboards of Boleskine House in Foyers, Scotland, located on the southeast side of Loch Ness. The manor was constructed in the 18th century and was once home to noted occultist Alistair Crowley. In the footage, the Dybbuk box is open to reveal a doll made with human hair, coins, a dried flower, and a creepy sketch. According to YouTuber The Tin Biscuit Podcast, the bizarre contents were possibly used in a ritual to summon and bind a demon. So for those of you who don't know much about Aleister Crowley, folks, there was a ceremony that he, ceremony or ritual that he conducted where he was trying to bind these demons of hell. Now, the princes of hell, I believe, was the terminology. Now, a lot of people have said that he basically cursed this house and the area around it because of the fact that he didn't finish the ritual and rushed back to London to help a friend who was in distress. So they say that from that day on, there's basically been all kinds of issues in the area. Now, I will be covering Boleskine House at some time in the future, so we won't go too far into depth about that. But uh, yeah, folks, if you get a chance, go over there, check out the video if you want. There'll be a link in the show notes. Now, the next one is from singularfortian.com. And this one is titled, New Images of UFO Sighting Over Encinitas, California, Taken on the Same Night as Tom DeLonge's Video. And this was from April of this year, and this was sent to me by Harry in North Carolina, one of the show's longest and biggest supporters. So thank you for that, Harry. And it's been updated on the 4th of October. That's why it's popped back up. So it says, on April 6th, paranormal radio show Coast to Coast AM published correspondence received from a listener that appears to corroborate a video shared by Tom DeLong, pop punk rock star and interim CEO of To The Stars Academy of Arts and Science, TTSA, just over a week ago. The listener, identified as Lori, wrote, On Tuesday night, March 31st, 2020, my friend Amy had an incredible UFO sighting of multiple objects. She saw seven large orange objects hovering over the ocean in Encinitas, California. She called me at 8.30 p.m., and I went down to the beach stairs near me to get a better look. As soon as I got there, one huge orange object appeared on the horizon and just stayed there for about four and a half minutes. It was flickering and twinkling and then turned more red, and when that happened, it appeared to have split into two objects, one on top of the other with some space in between. We watched until it faded out. Then it happened two more times for a total of three separate episodes of it appearing. We watched later people have seen them from as far north as Sacramento to as far south as Rosarito Beach, Baja, California, Mexico. 
On April 1st, DeLong shared a video to Instagram of an orange light he said he'd filmed the night before in Encinitas. And then here's his Instagram post. So last night, I get a text from somebody that there was a UAP right off the beach where I live. I ran to my balcony and saw it split into two pieces and raise vertically. I grabbed Marie, jumped in my truck, and went straight down to the beach. We were the only ones on the beach last night as this light disappeared, reappeared, broke into three pieces, and stacked vertically with one little red dot flying around the top and then disappeared for the rest of the evening. This video doesn't show much, but we were up quite late watching the light dance about a half a mile to a mile off of the beach. It was huge and it was fiery orange. Of course I called up Louis Elizondo as I was there and he was telling me all of these things I was supposed to do with location, geographic details, weather, altitude and distance, etc. Of course I was completely worthless when it came to those details. But yes, big deal last night in Encinitas, California. Lou checked immediately. There were no flights in the area except one that I had my eyes on the entire time. No military, no boats, and a bunch of hovering lights that were stacked on top of each other. Wild. Who knows? The light captured by DeLong is very similar to those in photographs sent to Coast to Coast AM, and the testimony regarding his conversation with Elizondo would seem to rule out any of the most common explanations for the lights, such as military flares. However, contrary to Elizondo's analysis, Air traffic control at San Diego International Airport, less than 25 miles south of Encinitas, was notified that military flares would be dropped in the area that evening. According to the audio log from March 31st, between 8 and 8.30 p.m., air traffic controllers at the airport were notified by an aircraft identified as Raider 28 that they would be doing a battlefield illumination drop in the area and that there would be heavy flares out there. So if you get called about it, it's us. That log is available online, and the relevant audio begins at about 18.35 into the recording. Some UFO enthusiasts are now comparing this phenomenon to the famed mass sighting incident known as the Phoenix Lights. The Phoenix Lights were a mass UFO sighting that occurred on Thursday, March 13, 1997, and stretched from Phoenix, Arizona to Sonora, Mexico. Witnesses reported a triangular formation of lights that passed over the state and a series of stationary lights in the Phoenix area. The events were witnessed by thousands of people between 7.30 p.m. and 10.30 p.m. that evening. The event was explained away as a military training exercise, but the eyewitnesses argued that they saw was inconsistent with the appearance and behavior of flares. So yeah, folks, uh, that's just another interesting case. And, you know, you would expect it in a state like California. I don't know what the exact population is, but when I was living there, I believe it was around 40 million and many people living along the coast looking at the ocean. There are plenty of sightings out there and plenty of cases if you would like to go and find the video. So there'll be a link in the show notes to this and you can go and check it out. Now that leads me to a second video that was sent to me by Harry in North Carolina again. So thank you, Harry. And this one is much more of just a video. And this is Underwater UFO appeared on beach webcam along the coast in California. And this is from Newsbreak.com. And this is uh, at the same time. This was on May the 7th, 2020. Now, look, folks, I've had a look at this and I've got a few issues with it. Look, I'm not someone who does a lot of video stuff. I don't manipulate video stuff and I don't really know everything that's involved. I've been a student of the unexplained and paranormal for most of my life, however. And so I do understand that as we move forward, it's getting a lot and a lot easier to manipulate such footage. Now, me personally, looking at this footage, I've got a few issues with it. 
first off, you know, they say in the video that it's a USO, but the vast majority of the time I see this object, it's definitely above the water because you can see the reflection off of the ocean surface. Second, in the lower right hand corner of this video where the waves are breaking and you see the white caps on the waves, you'll often see the lights glowing or the wave tops glowing, almost like bioluminescence, which I'm sure you've seen where you have these sea creatures that basically glow in the dark. The problem with this is it's not every wave breaking. So as far as I'm concerned, there's something up with this video. That's just my personal opinion. And yeah, it just looks a bit contrived to me. Again, I, I could be completely wrong. There have been cases in the past that I've thought that the photographic or video evidence was pretty solid, and then it's later been proven to be a hoax. So I'm not sure on this one, but all I'm saying is this is definitely in my glass half empty portfolio of videos as far as UFOs go. And it could just be somebody trying to cash in on that Tom DeLonge video and knowing that people were going to be online looking for it and therefore putting something out so that they would get other people to go and click on their YouTube channel, you know, play it and get some likes. Because again, there's definitely a financial gain to be made if you've got enough followers on a website, uh, is, you know, on YouTube or one of these other sites. And if you can get enough people to watch the videos, you can definitely, you know, it, it won't make you a billionaire, but um, it's definitely some money that could help this program out a lot. I can tell you that. So with those being out of the way, folks, we're now going to get into the fifth and last section of the U196 article. I fully understand, like I say, that this can be a bit difficult to digest, number one. And number two, for many of you out there, you may be saying, well, this is unbelievable. But again, I think it's a good introduction just to give you an idea of some of these theories out there in and around what the Nazis were really up to, what German scientists were up to before, during, and after World War II, and some of the potential technology that's out there. I mean, this is a rabbit hole that I could spend the next 20 episodes talking about, my friends, and I wouldn't be able to cover over all the theories and all the things and all of the potential conjecture and that that's come out of it. Again, on the Paranormal Sun, I try and leave information to you, but as for me personally, I'm sure that there is at least a skeleton of reality in behind a lot of these claims. I'm not saying they're all true. I'm not saying that everything is as meets the eye, but in my humble opinion, I'm sure there's much more to what happened with the Nazis and that 20 year or so span, and as I say, after the war, than we have been told. Now we will get into this final part of the U196 series. And the good bit about this is, folks, after doing the first four, on the fifth one, I finally worked out how to get it out of a PDF into a web page. So there shouldn't be any interruptions with, uh, you know, pop up ads coming through. This was published on the 3rd of August, 2019, as I say, by David Child Dennis, who, according to the website, is now deceased. So I can't ask him any questions, my friends, as far as getting a hold of him because he would be here in New Zealand. Unfortunately, I don't know of any easy way to get in touch with someone on the other side to have a full blown interview. You might hear a few words, but I don't think I'll be able to get a full interview out of uh, Mr. Dennis. So it says here, the U-196 arrived off the Northland coast sometime in May 1945 with a small team of German nuclear scientists and their equipment. They had been ordered there by the commander of the German submarine forces, Admiral Dönitz, as part of the secret agreement between Germany and Britain 
after the U.S. had determined to exclude Britain from the Manhattan Project, immediately after the second bomb was dropped in Japan. Photochemistry, creating weapons-grade uranium without a nuclear reactor. In 1945, during their incarnation at Farm Hall, a small country estate buried in rural England, the captured German nuclear scientists Gerlach, Dibner, and Hartek all referred to the photochemistry method for obtaining fissile uranium, the explosive core of a nuclear bomb. Yet historical accounts remain utterly silent about the process to which they refer. Photochemistry is a nuclear process where, in this case, mercury is vaporized using high-voltage electrical currents while being spun at extremely rapid rates in a vacuum chamber. To increase the transfer rate of electrons between the mercury and thorium, a catalyst known only as zerum-525, a gray-colored metallic paste, was added to the center of the spinning unit. It's dramatically increased the speed of the transfer of electrons. No one has been able to identify exactly what this zerum-525 was, although Jacob Sporenberg, an SS officer in charge of de Glocka's security referred to the use of beryllium oxide inside the Bell centrifuge. Some reporters have claimed Zerum-525 was highly radioactive, but accounts of this material being hand-loaded into the Glocka and test bombs would seem to contradict this. Researchers now believe that Zerum-525 was also a superconductor. Superconductors allow the passage of very high electrical energy loads to pass through or across them with almost no loss of energy. If there is no energy loss, there is no mechanical or electrical friction. Thus, the two ceramic plates in the bell, turning in opposite directions, were able to spin at such a high rate that mercury would be turned into plasma, the flash you see in lightning, at which point the electron and neutron transfer process took place. The greater the transfer of these particles to the thorium, the more quickly it was transformed into weapons-grade uranium. What it appears the Germans were attempting to achieve was fusion, or the adding of neutrons and protons to thorium-232 to transform it into uranium-233. Now, folks, I think he goes into it a bit here, but I'll just give you a very quick Cliff's Notes version of the difference between fission and fusion. So for those of you who can't remember your school science lessons, basically the idea of fission would be taking something like a large atom, something like uranium, bombarding it with a, another atom or a... I think it was a proton off the top of my head. Again, I'm not a nuclear physicist. Anyway, bombarding it so that it would split and release a massive amount of energy. The bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were fission bombs. Fusion is actually fusing these things together. So the process that the sun takes is fusion. Now, fusion is considered one of the holy grails of electrical production because it is clean. You basically would take something like water or deuterium and fuse it to make something that is then harmless so it's not going to give you radioactive things the problem they've had is containing this massive power source the heat without it melting anything that's used to contain it the modern weapons now you often hear the term thermonuclear well those are fusion weapons and they were first developed in the early to mid 1950s i want to say about 1954 the u.s tested the first ones in the pacific so basically, folks, if, you, if you're going on the Richter scale of an earthquake, uh, about a 1 is what a fission bomb is like, and a 9 or a 10 is a fusion bomb. Much, much more powerful, much more dangerous, and at the same time, if harnessed, potentially clean and cheap energy for as long as, I would say, mankind stays around. 
The production of weapons-grade uranium is complex and time-consuming. The American Manhattan Project spent from 1942 until August of 1945 attempting to produce enough uranium to make only one bomb. Dr. Robert Oppenheimer, the scientific leader of the American Bomb Project, stated to a congressional hearing after the war that it would have been September 1945 before the U.S. was in position to produce enough uranium-235 to make their first bomb. The American enrichment process was slow and too inefficient. The arrival of the German submarine U-234 in mid-May 1945, carrying 560 kilograms of uranium-233, an unknown quantity of zerum-525, and at least six bomb fuses, allowed the Americans to manufacture and deploy two bombs by August 1945 against Japan. Kamler held all the cards. The most difficult part in producing a successful nuclear weapon is the fuse. The German approach to achieving a successful detonation was the implosion method, by which neutrons bombarded the uranium core of the bomb. This had been proven with the dropping of the second neutron bomb, or Fat Man, over Nagasaki in August 1945. It was considered more powerful for its size than the first bomb dropped on Hiroshima a few days earlier. The American bombs all required German fuse units, of which six had been brought out of Germany just days before the end of the war in Europe. Kammler and Dernitz were the only ones who knew where the equipment and scientists were that could produce more fuses. This was one of their most valuable bargaining chips in the immediate post-war negotiations with the Allies. At the time, the Allies had no inkling about the concurrent Project Saucer operation aboard the only Junkers Ju-390-01 heavy transport aircraft. Late in April 1945, disguised as a Swedish airliner, the Junkers carried a small scientific team with plans and records from Munich to Uruguay and South America. It was last sighted in Portuguese Guiana, where it refueled for its transatlantic flight. Dernitz was probably unaware of the Ju-390 flight, but Kammler certainly knew. He had arranged it before vanishing soon after it took off. He is believed to have arrived in Uruguay by U-boat several weeks later. With U-196 somewhere near Sunda Straits, so that's in Southeast Asia, carrying the only fully equipped scientific team capable of making a fuse, Kammler ordered Dernitz to direct the U-boat to the Northland area of New Zealand and prepare to make a landing. The British government, deeply offended at the American refusal to share further nuclear intelligence and research, would have directed Dernitz to send the U-boat to New Zealand, which was well away from American forces, by then preparing to prevent the Russians from landing on Hokkaido the northernmost Japanese homeland island. It is more than possible that U-196 met with a British supply ship, not the Orion as previously thought, in the Sunda Straits to receive maps, charts, and recognition signal instructions from the British Navy. After refueling and reprovisioning, U-196 would have then headed south. As soon as the 196 arrived in New Zealand, the German scientific team would have confirmed the Japanese were close to producing their own fusion bomb. The likelihood of a Russian nuclear weapon being produced soon after the capture of the Hungnam nuclear research plant and Japanese scientists in Korea became apparent as the Soviet army prepared to invade Manchuria in June of 1945. The British government reacts. On August 29, 1945, the British nuclear weapon research program began after a small, highly secret cabinet committee, GEN 163, led by Prime Minister Attlee and six ministers, instructed William G. Penny, a highly experienced nuclear scientist, to commence a research program for the production of a free-fall nuclear bomb based on the American Fat Man bomb dropped on Nagasaki. 
Penny had flown as an observer on the Nagasaki raid and later visited the city to survey the damage. Penny had also witnessed the American Bikini Atoll test, Operation Crossroads, in 1946, and upon his return to England prepared a report, Plutonium Weapon, General Description. It came to the conclusion that as at October 1946, the British could not produce a nuclear weapon without U.S. assistance. From Penny's preliminary reports, it was clear the British had managed to gain some understanding of the wartime German bomb research and manufacturing processes, but they lacked the crucial fuse and initiator components. The British government immediately solicited the help of Australia, which had thorium, uranium, and also bomb test ranges, South Africa, which had uranium and various metals, Canada, which had enriched uranium, and New Zealand, which had thorium and bomb fuse design and testing for what was to become known as the Empire Bomb Project, so in other words, the British Empire. I suspect both the French and German governments were silent partners in this project, as was the Kammler organization, after re-establishing itself in Argentina and Uruguay. The project began by developing a bomb based on the wartime 14,000-pound Tallboy bomb, which proved to be so large and heavy, it required the introduction of the V-Bomber force to carry them. As a free-fall weapon, they proved too dangerous for the crews of the Vulcan and Victor to use. It was not until the arrival of the German nuclear weapons specialists from the late 1940s that any real progress was made in designing smaller, more reliable weapons. The first operationally successful nuclear weapon, codenamed Redbeard, used a warhead with a unique means of implosion, which allowed the overall size of the weapon to be reduced. The 15-kiloton yield bomb weighed only 1,750 pounds, or 760 kilos, which at that time was a major breakthrough for a nuclear bomb. It was first tested on September 27, 1956, at Maralinga in Australia. The mushroom cloud rose to a height of 11,430 meters, which is 47,660 feet, folks. The advent of the jet age in the last months of World War II dramatically altered the world's strategic balance. Suddenly, the world was faced with tactical rather than strategic nuclear weapons, carried by a revolutionary, unarmed, lightweight jet bomber. Now the post-war British Empire possessed a weapon that could not be ignored by potential military rivals. The difference, again, between a strategic versus a tactical nuclear weapon is a tactical weapon is something that is used in a theater of war. So if we think about World War II and we think about the invasion at Normandy, because almost everyone here will know what was going on there, a tactical weapon would be something that you could use in that theater. So, for example, theoretically, if one or the other had a nuclear weapon, you could use it on the beaches there against the Allies. The Americans could maybe drop it on, you know, somewhere in France. Now, a strategic weapon, on the other hand, is something where you can hit your enemy behind the front lines. So, in this case, it would be the U.S. using one on Berlin, the Germans using one on Moscow or New York or Washington, D.C. So the weapons now that the large countries like the U.S., Russia, France, these things that are on nuclear missiles are generally much more strategic than tactical. North Korea, that's been the argument for a while, is when will they get a weapon, a missile that can fire a atomic bomb far enough to hit the U.S. West Coast. So that is the difference between tactical and strategic weapons, folks. Redbeard. In 1956, the RNZAF began taking delivery of 12 on-loan Canberra B-1-12 jet bombers. While we awaited the delivery of our B-2 variants, 
which we substituted for U.S. A-4 Skyhawks. So this is the New Zealand Air Force folks. These B-1-12s were later deployed for a toss bombing delivery using the Low Altitude Bombing System, or LABS, utilizing the Blue Silk Doppler radar system to ensure highly accurate radar altimeter settings for the bomb fuses. 48 bombs were stored at RAF Tenga in Singapore. British, Australian, and New Zealand Canberras regularly deployed to Tenga during the late 1950s, presumably to familiarize crews in the use of Redbeard. The bombs were never intended for use during the Malaysian emergency, but clearly threatened southern China after the Korean War. All the German scientists brought into Australia after 1945 had the expertise required for the development of this weapon. The bomb fuse supposedly developed by the U-196 Scientific Detachment at Army Bay Fongaparoa using Zerum-525 was a key factor in the early development of tactical nuclear weapons following the Americans' rupture of nuclear cooperation after August of 1945. Somewhere between Tiki Punga and Fongaray, where there are numerous deep mine shafts and Army Bay Fongaparoa, there must have been several bells in operation producing Zerum-525 and enriched uranium-233. We believe the Australians were duplicating the same program in Melbourne from the beginning on 1946 using the similar Tokomak system. Now, folks, again, I learn something all the time. This is the first time I've ever heard of the Glocke or the Nazi bell being used anywhere outside of the Nazi hierarchy. So either being used in Germany or in South America, or if you believe the rabbit hole enough, uh, Antarctica. But I never heard that anyone on the Allied side of the war got their hands on this technology, unless you believe the whole Kecksburg tie-in. Naming names, the scientists with a past. The following list of German scientists demonstrates the British Empire shared a common interest in pursuing the development of nuclear weapons. It's a mistake to assume that all those who were recruited by the Anglo-Australian Nuclear Project have been identified in this age article. Their arrival dates into Australia in suspect is suspect as well. Why? The fracture in the Allied nuclear arrangement occurred in August 1945, soon after the dropping of the second bomb on Nagasaki. Britain's new Prime Minister, Clement Attlee, elected in July 1945, demanded Britain pursue a nuclear weapons program as soon as possible to counter the Russian capture of Japanese and German nuclear scientists, which he knew must result in a Russian weapon. Accordingly, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, South Africa, and Britain embarked on their own nuclear program based in Australia and their Pacific territories. In 1946, the Australian Peter Toneman and Sir George Thompson from Britain pioneered studies of plasma magnetic confinement in a toroidal configuration at Oxford University. Peter Toneman was closely identified with the landmark toroidal pinch experiment in the Zeta unit, a nuclear project that explored electromagnetic field containment of extremely high voltages for the manufacture of weapons-grade uranium and plutonium. While it attracted a great deal of press attention in the 1960s, little real relevant information was disclosed. Now, folks, there's a list of the German scientists here, and I'm just going to I'm, I'm going to shorten their comments just a little bit to give you an idea of some of these people. Dr. Fritz Albrecht. Now, I've heard of him. He was a meteorologist and an expert on atmospheric radiation. He was a member of a Nazi party from 33 to 45, deputy head of meteorological observatory in Potsdam. War work included thermal imaging project codenamed Potsdam. He arrived in Australia in 1949. 
The second one is Mrs. Edith Herta Regina Alter. She was a metallographer. So again, something that you would definitely need because you need them to work with the radioactive isotopes as well as building containment and everything else. She also arrived into Australia in 1949. Again, Nazi party. She was. They found out she was in the party after she got to Australia. Dr. Rudolf Eric Bauer, design engineer, electronics specialist. Again, you need electronics for nuclear weapons. Again, turned up in Melbourne in 1949, later cleared for secret work. Dr. Heinz Edward Billing, physicist, specialist in electronic computing devices. Again, folks, you need computers for things like running centrifuges and everything else. Worked for Luftwaffe Meteorological Service, 1939 to 1940, developing acoustic targeting device for enemy aircraft. Head of acoustic section of Aerodynamische Verstuschestalt Göttingen, developing acoustic targeting device for enemy aircraft. So again, someone else, electronic specialist, involved and turning up in Australia in 1949. Theodore Fierigel. Design and Development Engineer, Specialist in Optical Equipment. Optical Equipment is sites, things like telescopes, other viewing technology, the sites that you use in tanks and in planes, etc. Again, he turns up in March of 1948 in Melbourne. Dr. Robert Morton Friedrich Hoffman, Industrial Chemist, again, Industrial Chemist, Expert in Surface Treatment of Metals, again, turning up in Australia, turned up in 1948, employed electricity meter and allied industries, so he went to work in the electrical field. Heinz August Kompfhausen, glass technician, specialist in making glass apparatus for analysis. So again, manufactured glass apparatus for analysis and benzene synthesis for mineral oil mining company in Berlin from 40 to 45. After war, employed by IG Farben, which was the massive Nazi conglomerate of businesses that produced everything from nerve gas to explosives and everything in between. And there are companies now that have been spun off from IG Farman that all can tie their roots back to Nazi Germany. And again, this, this gentleman was employed at a university in Melbourne. Dr. Walter Mueller, atomic physicist, co-inventor of the Geiger counter, member Nazi party 37 to 45, Employed by Siemens, which was another massive Nazi entity, specializing in X-ray tubes and electron optics. Turned up in Australia, 1951. Dr. Helmuth Ritter, physicist, expert in optical and geodetic instruments. Again, another one. Went to Palestine, then turns up in Australia in 1948. Hans Ruckert, electrical engineer. Werner Schmidt, engineer, machine tool expert. Werner Schwitke, nuclear physicist. Carl Friedrich Tetwiller, microchemist, one of the foremost microanalysts in Germany, turns up here in Australia in 1947. Dr. Kurt Max Wagner, organic research chemist, another expert, turns up in Australia, 1951. Dr. Friedrich Wilhelm Wolzersdorf, physicist, born in 1909, Turns up in Australia in 1954, where he became Principal Scientific Officer of the Jet Propulsion Division Weapons Research Establishment. Okay, folks, so what were all of these men doing down here in the Southern Hemisphere? If I had to guess, the short answer is, at the very least, they were involved in creating this nuclear weapon, this atomic bomb for the British government, for the empire at that time. 
This atomic bomb definitely was detonated, tested, and Australia, during the Cold War, had atomic weapons. It's a little-known fact. Not given to them by the Americans, but developed in conjunction with England, New Zealand, etc. Australia was very paranoid after World War II with the Japanese getting so close to their borders that the Chinese or the Russians were going to do the same thing, or potentially just attack Australia with nuclear weapons. So they wanted to make sure they had that deterrent. This is all a matter of fact. These weapons existed. They were stationed on Australian soil. I don't know about atomic weapons on New Zealand soil, but I know for a fact they were held in Australia, held in Singapore by the British government. So all of this is fact. Now, were they involved doing other things? Were they involved with the Glocka or some of these other weapons programs? Potentially. I mean, how many times have we seen that Western governments, all governments really, but especially Western governments, and especially since World War II, have continued to lie to us, the populace, as to what they've been up to or what they've been doing. Most of the time they're doing that, it's not for our own good. It's because of the fact that what they're up to is a little bit shady. Here we go, folks. A final word from the author. I would ask readers to remember that much of the official information relating to nuclear research projects was deliberately misleading or withheld critical information. This was done principally to misdirect Soviet intelligence during the Cold War. The Chernobyl disaster was in part a consequence of this policy. Unfortunately, most of the people involved in that early work were not in a position to speak about it before the material was declassified. German nuclear research led the world in 1945. While the main thrust of the German research during the war was aimed at producing nuclear weapons, a second and parallel program was directed towards developing anti-gravity systems and time displacement. The system was called Latte Montrager, or Lantern Bearer, or Kronos, anti-gravity technology and existed from about 1925. The Coanda effect being the main line of research, but the Coanda system was based on conventional jet engine and rocket technology. Kamler and the SS scientists appear to have been developing an electromagnetic Coanda effect from as early as 1942. The team was far advanced in its thinking about quantum physics, as you would expect, folks, with all of these brilliant minds being involved, all because of the way in which the Tulis Society trained its members to solve problems. Seeing is believing. The first optical effect observed during Glocket operations was magnetic lensing, whereby a light source bends as it passes through any magnetic field. This effect is now commonly used in astronomical observations. Because of this, the Germans immediately realized time was not a constant. It exhibited local variations according to the environment in which it was measured. But it was soon discovered such experiments involved highly dangerous levels of X-ray radiation that living tissue could not survive. Death usually occurred within 8 to 12 hours after exposure. Some electromagnetic effects could not be shielded against, and the only solution was to cite de Glocke deep underground or in disused mine shafts. Throughout this series, I have referred to Project Saucer, a devel developed in parallel with de Glocke, Spinhutte technology, which was truly revolutionary. If there is enough reader interest in Project Saucer's subject, I shall begin a new series that hopefully explores one of the most fascinating technological breakthroughs in human history. Is there a local New Zealand dimension to this event? I'll let the reader decide that for themselves, after they have read the new series. Well, folks, unfortunately, there will not be a new series, at least from this gentleman, because as I say, my understanding is, he has passed on. But it is a fascinating subject, and... You may sit there and go, oh, that's all BS, and 90% of that is conjecture and BS. And that may be true, folks. But if 10% of it is true, 
then it changes the way that the world actually is. The way we were all taught and the way that the world actually is, who are the major players, who's behind the scenes, who's got what. All of that changes if this story is true. So thank you so much for listening to that. I hope it wasn't too difficult for you to listen through. I realized a lot of technical stuff and a lot of rabbit hole stuff there. So in the near future, probably with the news of the dam, we'll just go back to our three or four articles a week. But once I started down this story, I didn't want to stop it prematurely. And each article, you know, each section of the article was much longer than I expected. If I, you know, if I would have planned a bit better, I would have just split it up. But anyway, folks, I hope that you have enjoyed that. If it's something you're interested in, drop me a line because there's plenty more out there. There's plenty more theories involved with the Third Reich, what happened before, during, and after World War II, and tie-ins to this day. So make sure you drop me a line if you like it and you want to hear more. Back by popular demand, we are now going to get into the third in our series of reincarnation. What's the evidence? What's the proof? Is there any actual evidence behind it? As always, folks, I'd love you to listen to these 10 tales. So go out there, get yourself an adult beverage or a coffee or a tea, whatever you may enjoy. Sit back, relax, and let me tell you these 10 tales and be your tour guide to the unexplained. Automotive industry pioneer Henry Ford told the San Francisco Examiner in 1928 why he had adopted the theory of reincarnation when he was only 26. Work is futile if we cannot utilize the experience we collect in one life in the next. When I discovered reincarnation, it was as if I had found a universal plan. Time was no longer limited. The discovery of reincarnation put my mind at ease. According to the Daily Mail, rock star Phil Collins believes to be the reincarnation of an Alamo survivor. The battle in 1836 saw 1,500 Mexican troops lay siege to 200 Texans, including Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie, in the mission of the Alamo in San Antonio. All but a handful of the Texans were killed. A clairvoyant who Collins met while traveling in Texas in 2012 convinced the singer of it, so he began to study the history of the Alamo and collecting artifacts on the battle, until it became a passion for him. Collins remains defensive about his own example of reincarnation. However, he told the Rolling Stone magazine he was not a freak to believe that this was possible. What is true? What is false? I know there are some very smug people out there who are certain that this is all impossible or circumstantial, but perhaps after hearing these 10 cases, they too will see the phenomenon differently. The case of Ma Tin Ong Miao. Tin Ong Miao felt out of place. She hated Burma's heat. She disliked the spicy food of her region. Most of all, she didn't fit the roles her mother and father or any of the other members of her village expected her to play. She didn't want to wear women's clothes instead choosing to dress like her brother. Ma Tin didn't want to play with other girls, either. She wanted toy guns, which was a highly unusual request in their community and culture. The oddities started earlier. When Ma Tin was four years old, she was walking with her father and noticed an airplane above. She recoiled in terror and began to cry. Her father tried to console her, but she was adamant. I want to go home, the girl said again and again. She cried any time an airplane flew overhead. Her father asked why, and she said the planes would shoot her. When he told her that was silly, she replied, I was shot and killed. When reproached for her fear of airplanes, she answered, What do you know? I was shot and killed, not you. Age nine, she was frightened when a helicopter landed in a field nearby their village. Most of the other villagers went to see it, but she fled crying into the house. Her father, Yu Ai Miao, 
was intrigued by this. As the war had been over many years, and aircraft were now simply machines of transport rather than weapons of war. It was therefore strange that Ma was afraid that the aircraft would shoot at her. The child became more and more morose, stating that she wanted to go home. Later, home became more specific. She wanted to return to Japan. At an early age, she talked to herself and other children using words they couldn't understand, though no attempt was made to learn whether they were Japanese or from another language. Her mother said she had been unable to speak Burmese normally until the age of five. As a young child, Ma Tin Yong Miao played with boys instead of other girls, and particularly liked playing at soldiers. She asked her parents to buy her toy guns, saying she wanted to be a soldier when she grew up. No other child of the family, even her brother, had these interests. She played sports that are played by boys in Burma. From an early age, Ma Tin Ong Miao insisted on wearing boys' clothes. She refused to wear girls' clothes, throwing them aside if her mother pressed them onto her, claiming they would give her a headache or irritate her skin. At the age of 11, she even dropped out of school rather than obey the school rule to wear appropriate feminine attire. She told Stevenson, almost boastfully, that she owned no women's clothes at all. This girl, who did not seem able to conform, caused a stir in the village in Upper Burma, and the attention in turn caused Ma Tin embarrassment and shame. She felt uncomfortable in her own body. She got kicked out of school at 12 for not dressing like a girl. When she first got her period at 15, she was distraught. She hated her periods, saying they were unbecoming for a man. Her dysmorphia persisted into adulthood. Finally, one day, Ma Tin told her parents what she said was her story. She had lived before as a Japanese soldier, she explained bluntly. This man, the soldier she was speaking about, was from northern Japan. He was married with children, whom he had to leave behind to serve in World War II. He had owned a small shop in Japan before joining the army and was sad to leave it as well. He was stationed in their Burmese village as an army cook approximately 30 years earlier. One day, the soldier had made a pile of firewood near an acacia tree. Overhead, a two-tailed Allied plane turned and dove towards him. A hail of machine gun bullets riddled him in the groin, killing him. Ma Tin told her family she wanted to go home, not meaning their village, but back to Japan, back to her children. She told her parents that when she grew up, she would go there by herself if they wouldn't go. Ma was glad to have gotten it all out and thought her parents would never believe her. She was very wrong, to say the least. Let's head back in time to 1942. Burma was under Japanese occupation. The Allies regularly bombed Japanese supply lines, particularly the railways. The village of Natul was no exception, being close to the important railway station at Puang. Regular attacks made life very hard for the villagers, who were trying their best to survive. Indeed, survival meant getting along with the Japanese occupiers. For villager Da Ai Tin, who would later become the mother of Ma Tin Ong Miao. This meant discussing the relative merits of Burmese and Japanese food with the stocky, regularly bare-chested Japanese army cook who was stationed in the village. When the war ended and life returned to a semblance of normality, in early 1953, Da found herself pregnant with her fourth child. The pregnancy was normal, with the odd exception of a recurring dream in which the Japanese cook, with whom she had long lost contact, would follow her and announce that he was coming to stay with her family. She had this dream three times, with five to ten days between each occurrence. On December the 26, 1953, 
dog gave birth to a daughter and called her Ma Ten Ong. The baby was perfect with one small exception, a thumb-sized birthmark on her groin. More on that later. Ma Ten Ong did not like the hot climate of Burma. Cloudy weather appeared to make her nostalgic and caused her to talk about her previous life. On such days, she would hide or express a wish to go home to Japan. Ma Ten Ong disliked the spicy food that is typical of Burmese cuisine, preferring mild and sweet foods. She pressed her family to cook curries with juggery, a sugary preparation made from coconut palms. As a young child, she liked to eat fish, especially half raw. Her mother gave her non-spicy foods such as eggs. She was not allowed to cook for her family because of her aversion to using spices and hot chilies. Conversely, she voiced a low opinion of other family members' competence in the kitchen. She told several other children in the village she was the best cook in her family because when her food wasn't good enough in the army, she was punished. And how could her simple village family be better at cooking than her? Ma Tin Ong often expressed a longing to return to Japan and said she planned to go there when she grew up. Sometimes she cried with homesickness. She also appeared to miss her past life children. Her enthusiasm for Japan caused her family to nickname her Japongui, which can be loosely translated as Japanese guy. Originally given just two names, Ten Ong, which can be used for either sex, Ma Ten Ong Miao added Miao to make her full name more masculine and would become annoyed at her sisters if they called her just Ten Ong. Between 1972 and 1975, Ma Ten Ong Miao was interviewed three times about her reincarnation memories by Ian Stevenson. Now, you've heard me talk about Ian Stevenson before, folks. This is the doctor who gathered hundreds of these cases of past life events from children, and he covered several of the cases that I've already gone over, and he covered others that I'll be going over in future. When Stevenson first met Ma Ten Ong Miao, who was then 19, she was, as he put it, overtly masculine in her sexual orientation. She insisted on dressing as a man and kept her hair short and cropped as a man. She had steady girlfriends and no wish to marry a man, expressing a preference for marrying another woman. Ma was left-handed and remembered having been left-handed in her Japanese life, as has been noted in other cases. Ma Ten Ong Miao was said by her family to have had a birthmark in her infancy that later disappeared. Da A Tin told Stevenson she had noticed it on one of the baby's thighs immediately after the birth. Her oldest sister confirmed that she too had observed it. A second older sister called it a sore in the groin, which itched and which Ma Tin Ong Miao would scratch. According to the sister, the sore patch did not heal until the age of two or three. In a more detailed later description, she said it was just over her sexual organs, a brownish patch the size of a thumb, that was an inch by an inch and a half in area. A village elder who had also seen the mark confirmed this description. The location matched Ma Tin Ong Miao's memory of being shot in the groin. In this case, the identity of the previous person could not be discovered. Ma Tin Ong Miao did not remember her past life name, and Stevenson did not access records to find a Japanese army cook who had died in Nathul during the Japanese evacuation. However, the statements of memories, behavioral signs, and physical signs correspond strongly, defying explanations other than reincarnation. The announcing dream experienced by her mother is a phenomenon which often appears in child reincarnation cases. However, the dreams were untypical in occurring during the pregnancy rather than before it started, 
as is considered normal in Burma. Also, the spirit declared his intention to come to her rather than asking her permission, which is also considered the norm. This could reflect the involvement of two different cultures. Ma Tin Ong Miao was born a mere 75 meters away from where the previous person died, a feature found in other cases. A connection between the previous person and one or other parent of the child is often present. In this case, Da Ya Tin had been on friendly terms with the soldier. There were also some differences, however. A period of at least eight years passed between the soldier's death and Ma Tin Ong Miao's birth. But unlike some other child cases, she made no statements about any experiences in that interval time. As with so many cases like this, in time, her connection to her past life slowly faded. By the time she was a late teen, her fear of planes started to wane. But it only happened slowly over time. She also slowly started eating the local cuisine, spice and all. Ma also lost her desire to return home to Japan. One thing that never faded, however, was her strong identification with being a male. When Stevenson experienced some incredulity at her continuing insistence that she was essentially male, she answered that he could kill her by any method he chose, under one condition, that she be reborn as a boy. With respect to Ma's masculine identification and behaviors, Stevenson noted in the paper that she cannot be called transsexual, lacking interest in or knowledge of surgical sexual reassignment, though she did hope to be born biologically male in her next life. Nor could she be called a transvestite, because she did not dress in masculine clothing for sexual stimulation. Stevenson wrote, Ma Ten Ong Miao dresses as a male because she thinks she is a male, and she dresses thus habitually. At the age of 28, when Stevenson last heard about her, Ma was living in another village with another woman, and still acting as masculine as ever. Now folks, here is the case of Alan Miller. My name is Jesus and I'm serious. Just a little over 2,000 years ago, I came to Earth for the first time, says Alan John Miller, a former IT specialist in Australia, who claims to be the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. While his partner says, she is the repentant prostitute Mary Magdalene. I have very clear memories of the crucifixion, but it was so distressing to me as it was for others. Like Mary who was present, says Miller, a divorced father of two, who said his first marriage fell apart when he began remembering the details of the alleged incarnation. He also says he remembers performing miracles. The two together started a religious movement called Divine Truth and claimed to have about 150 followers. On the British Magazine program this morning, on 15th July 2015, Miller claimed that in the first century as Jesus, he was in a state of at one with God and thus God could perform miracles through him. In his present incarnation, he is not yet at that stage of development, and thus cannot perform miracles. He only became at one with God at the age of 31 in the first century. In his present 2015 incarnation, he only started accepting he was Jesus at the age of 40, although he said he has had memories of being Jesus since he was two. When asked by E.M.N. Holmes what his message to the world is, Miller responded that there are two forms of love, the love that flows from the individual to another, natural love, and then there is God's love, divine love. God's love can enter a person and has the power to transform a person. Miller stated that he encourages people to engage this process by asking God for his love and then to notice the changes that will occur once a person receives this love 
and their ability to share this love with others. Miller claims he communicates with God not through words, but that God communicates through her love, and this is how he also discovers God's truth, a process open to all people, all God's children. The Cult Awareness and Information Center had previously said of divine truth, The moment someone becomes God or God's voice on earth, it gives them another level of authority to enforce submission to them. Miller states, All we do is present seminars and answer people's questions. I still, for the life of me, can't quite understand where the cult thing has come from. There were lots of people in the first century who didn't believe I was the Messiah and were offended by what I said. And in fact, I died at the hands of some of them. Now, this one, folks, is a very fascinating case. This is the case of Swarnlata Mishra. The story of Swarnlata is characteristic of Stevenson's cases. The young girl's memories began when she was only three. She gave enough information to enable Stevenson to locate the family of the deceased person she remembered. In other words, the case was solved, and she gave more than 50 specific facts that were verified. But Schwernlotta's case was also different from most because her memories did not fade. Schwernlotta Mishra was born to an intellectual and prosperous family in Pradesh in India in 1948. When she was just three years old and traveling with her father past the town of Kotni, more than 100 miles from her home, she suddenly pointed and asked the driver to turn down a road to my house and suggested they could get a far better cup of tea than they could anywhere on the road. Soon after, she related more details of her life in Cotney, all of which were written down by her father. She said her name was Biapathak and that she had two sons. She gave details of the house. It was white with black doors fitted with iron bars. Four rooms were stuccoed but other parts were less finished. The front door was of stone slabs. She located the house in Jerkutia, a district of Cotney. Behind the house was a girl's school. In front was a railway line, and lime furnaces were visible from the house. She added that the family had a motor car, a very rare item in India in the 1950s, and especially before Schwanlata was born. Schwanlata said Bia died of a pain in her throat and was treated by Dr. S. C. Babrat in Jabalapur. She also remembered an incident at a wedding when she and a friend had difficulty finding a latrine. In the spring of 1959, when Schwernlata was 10 years old, news of the case reached Professor Sri H. N. Banerjee, an Indian researcher of paranormal phenomena and colleague of Ian Stevenson. Banerjee took the notes her father made and traveled to Cotney to determine if Schwarnlata's memories could be verified. Using nothing more than the description that Schwarnlata had given, he found the house, despite the house having been enlarged and improved since 1939 when Bia died. It belonged to the Pathaks, a common name in India, a wealthy, prominent family with extensive business interests. The lime furnaces were on land adjoining the property. The girls' school was indeed 100 yards behind the Pathaks' property but not visible from the front. He interviewed the family and verified everything Schwarnlata had said. Biapathak had died in 1939, leaving behind a grieving husband, two young sons, and many younger brothers. These Pathaks had never heard of the Mishra family, who lived a hundred miles away. The Mishras had no knowledge of the Pathak family. The next scene in the story sounds like a plot from Agatha Christie, but it is all true. Extracted from Stevenson's tabulations, is Schwernlata's published case. In the summer of 1959, Bia's husband, son, and eldest brother journeyed to the town of Chattapur 
the town where Schwarnlata now lived, to test Schwarnlata's memory. They did not reveal their identities on purpose to others in the town, but enlisted nine townsmen to accompany them to the Mishra house, where they arrived unannounced. Schwarnlata immediately recognized her brother and called him Babu, Bia's pet name for him. Stevenson gives only the barest facts, but I can imagine the emotions ran high at this point. Imagine how Babu felt to be recognized immediately by his dead sister reborn. Ten-year-old Schwarnlata went around the room looking at each man in turn. Some she identified as men she knew from her town. Some were strangers to her. Then she came to Sri Chintamini Padni, Bia's husband. Schwarnlata lowered her eyes, looked bashful as Hindu wives do in the presence of their husbands, and spoke his name. Schwarnlata also correctly identified her son from her past life. Murli, who was 13 years old when Bia died, but Murli schemed to mislead her and for almost 24 hours insisted against her objections that he was not Murli, but someone else. Murli had also brought along a friend and tried to mislead Schwarnlata once again by insisting he was Naresh, Bia's other son, who was about the same age as, as this friend. Schwarnlata insisted just as strongly that he was a stranger. Finally, Schwarnlata reminded Sripanni that he had purloined 1,200 rupees Bia kept in a box. Sripanni admitted to the truth of this private fact that only he and his wife had known. A few weeks later, Schwarnlata's father took her to Katni to visit the home and town where Bia lived and died. Upon arriving, she immediately noticed and remarked about the changes to the house. She asked about the parapet at the back of the house, a veranda, and the neem tree that used to grow in the compound. All had been removed since Bia's death. She identified Bia's room and the room in which she had died. She recognized one of Bia's brothers and correctly identified him as her second brother. She did the same for her third and fourth brother. The wife of the younger brother, the son of the second brother, calling him by his pet name, Babu, a close friend of the family, correctly commenting that he was now wearing spectacles, which he in fact had acquired since Bia had died, and his wife, calling her by her pet name, Bujai, Bia's sister-in-law, all with appropriate emotions of weeping and nervous laughter. She also correctly identified a former servant, an old betel nut seller, and the family cowherd, despite her youngest brother's attempt to test Schwarnlata by insisting that the cowherd had died. Later, Schwarnlata was presented to a room full of strangers and asked whom she recognized. She correctly picked out her husband's cousin, the wife of Bia's brother-in-law, and a midwife, who she identified not by her current name, but by a name she had used when Bia was alive. Bia's son, Murli, in another test, introduced Schwarnlata to a man he called a new friend, Bola. Schwarnlata insisted correctly that this man was actually Bia's second son, Naresh. In another test, Bia's youngest brother tried to trap Schwarnlata by saying that Bia had lost her teeth. Schwarnlata did not fall for this and went on to say that Bia had gold fillings in her front teeth a fact that the brothers had forgotten and were forced to confirm by consulting with their wives, who reminded them that what Schwarnlata said was indeed true. This must have been a spectacle. Here was a 10-year-old stranger from far away, so far in terms of Indian culture, that her dialect was distinctly different than that of the Pathaks, who acted confidently like an older sister of the household, was familiar with intimate names and family secrets, and remembered even marriage relationships, old servants, and friends. Just as amazing, her memory was frozen at the time of Bia's death. Schwarnlata knew nothing about the Pathak family that had happened since 1939. 
In the following years, Schwarnlata visited the Pathak family at regular intervals. Stevenson investigated the case in 1961, witnessing one of the visits. He observed the loving relationship between Schwarnlata and the other members of the family. They all accepted her as Bia reborn. Schwarnlata behaved appropriately reserved towards Bia's elders. But when alone with Bia's sons, she was relaxed and playful as a mother would be, behavior that would otherwise be totally inappropriate in India for a 10-year-old girl in the company of unrelated men in their mid-30s. The Pathak brothers and Schwarnlata observed the Hindu custom of Rakhi, in which brothers and sisters annually renew their devotion to each other by exchanging gifts. In fact, the Pathak brothers were distressed and angry one year when Schwarnlata missed the ceremony. They felt that because she had lived with them for 40 years, and with the Mishras for only 10 years, that they had a greater claim on her. As evidence of how strongly the Pathaks believed that Schwarnlata was their Bia, they admitted that they had changed their views of reincarnation upon meeting Schwarnlata and accepting her as Bia reborn. The Pathaks, because of their status and wealth, emulated Western ideas and had not believed in reincarnation before this happened. Schwarnlata's father, Sri Mishra, also accepted the truth of Schwarnlata's past identity. Years later, when it came time for Schwarnlata to marry, he consulted with the Pathaks about the choice of a husband for her. How did Schwarnlata feel about all of this? Was it confusing for her to remember so completely the life of a grown woman? Stevenson visited her in later years and corresponded with her for 10 years after the case was investigated. He reports that she grew up normally, received an advanced degree in botany, and got married. She said that sometimes when she reminisced about her happy life in Cotney, her eyes brim with tears, and for a moment she wished she could return to the wealth and life of Bia. But her loyalty to the Mishra family was undivided, and except for the regular visits to Cotney, she went about the business of growing into a beautiful young woman, accepting fully her station in this life. In some ways, Schwarnlata is typical of Stevenson's cases. The amazing number of facts and people she remembered, the positive identification of the previous personality, the exchange of visits between the families, and the age at which she first had her memories. What is not typical, however, is the persistence of clear memories into her adulthood, the lack of a traumatic death, and the support and cooperation between the families. In most cases, one or both of the families are reluctant to encourage the child or to bring the case to the outside world. This is a sweet case that illustrates what profoundly enriching human experience a past life memory can bring about. Now this is the case of Petrick Christensen and his brother. One case offering substantial reincarnation proof was that of Petrick Christensen, who was born by Caesarean Section in Michigan in March 1991. His elder brother Kevin had died of cancer 12 years earlier at the age of two. Early evidence of Kevin's cancer was presented six months prior to his death when he began to walk and had a noticeable limp. One day he fell and broke his leg. Tests were done, and after a biopsy on a small nodule in his scalp, just above his right ear, it was discovered that little Kevin had metastatic cancer. Soon tumors were found growing in other locations in his body. One such growth caused his eye to protrude and eventually resulted in blindness in that eye. Kevin was given chemotherapy, which resulted in scars on the right-hand side of his neck. He eventually died of his illness, three weeks after his second birthday. At birth, Patrick had a slanting birthmark with the appearance of a small cut on the right side of his neck, exactly the same location as Kevin's chemotherapy scar, showing startling evidence of reincarnation. He also had a nodule on his scalp just above his right ear 
and a clouding of his left eye, which was diagnosed as corneal leukoma. When he began to walk, it was with a distinct limp, again, offering further proof of reincarnation. When he was almost four and a half, he said to his mother that he wanted to go back to his old orange and brown house. This was the exact coloring of the house in which the family had lived in 1979 when Kevin was still alive. He then asked if she remembered him having surgery. She replied that she could not because this had never happened to him. Patrick then pointed to a place just above his right ear. He added that he didn't remember the actual operation because he was asleep, which was consistent with the details of Kevin's past life. Now, I personally found this case quite fascinating, and this is the story of the ancestral memories of Sam Taylor. Sam Taylor is a boy from Vermont who was born a year and a half after his paternal grandfather died. When I was your age, I changed your diaper, said the dark-haired boy to his father. Ron looked down at his smiling son, who had not yet turned two. He thought it was a very strange thing to say, but he figured he had misheard him. After his mother saw the puzzled look on his father's face as he brought Sam out of his room, they discussed the comment, which they both found odd. Neither had ever given reincarnation much thought. Though Sam's mother was the daughter of a Southern Baptist minister, his parents were not religious. But as baby Sam made similar remarks over the next few months, Ron and his wife Kathy gradually pieced together an odd story. Sam believed that he was his deceased grandfather, Ron's late father, who had returned to his family. More intrigued than alarmed, Ron and Kathy asked Sam, How did you come back? Sam replied, I just went whoosh and came out that portal, he responded. Following that incident, Sam gradually began saying that he had been his grandfather. He also said, I used to be big, but now I'm small. While his father was initially skeptical about such a possibility, his mother was more open to the idea, and she began asking him questions about the life of his paternal grandfather. At one point, she and Sam were talking about the fact that his grandmother had taken care of his grandfather before he died. Sam's mother asked him what his grandmother made every day for his grandfather to drink, and Sam correctly said that she had made milkshakes and that she had made them in a machine in the kitchen. He got up to show her the food processor on the kitchen counter. When his mother showed him the blender in the pantry and asked if he meant that was what his grandmother had made the milkshakes with, he said no and pointed out the food processor again. In fact, his grandmother had made milkshakes for his grandfather in the food processor. She had had a series of strokes after the death of his grandfather, and Sam had never seen her make milkshakes for anyone. At another time, Sam's mother asked him if he had any brothers or sisters when he lived before. He answered, yeah, I had a sister. She turned into a fish. When she asked him who turned her into a fish, he said, some bad guys. She died. You know what? When we die, God lets us come back again. I used to be big, and now I'm a kid again. Eerily enough, Sam's grandfather had a sister who had been murdered 60 years earlier. Her body was found floating in the San Francisco Bay. Her husband killed her while she was sleeping, rolled her body up in a blanket, and dumped it into the bay. Ron and Kathy then gently asked Sam, Do you know how you died? Sam jerked back and slapped the top of his head as if in pain. One year before Sam was born, his grandfather had died of a cerebral hemorrhage. He also told his parents, that after death you go to heaven, and God will give you a card that allows you a second chance at life. At other times, Sam correctly said that his grandfather's favorite place in the home was the garage, where he worked on his inventions, and that Sam's father had a small steering wheel of his own when they rode in the car. When his father was a boy, he had a toy steering wheel that attached to the dashboard of a car by suction cups. 
When Sam was four and a half years old, his grandmother died. His father flew out to her home to take care of her belongings and returned with a box of family photographs. Sam's parents had not had any pictures of his father's family before then. When his mother spread them out on the coffee table one night, Sam came over and began pointing to the pictures of his grandfather and saying, That's me! When he saw a snapshot that just showed a car without any people, he said, Hey, that's my car! This was a picture of the first new car that his grandfather had ever purchased, a 1949 Pontiac that was very special to him. His mother gave Sam a class picture from when his grandfather was in grammar school. The picture showed 27 children, 16 of them boys. Sam ran his finger over the faces, stopped it on his grandfather's face, and said, That's me. His father says that Sam's grandfather did not communicate very well about emotional issues with his sons, particularly when they were adults. Sam's father let his own father know how he felt about him, but his father had great difficulty reciprocating. He feels that if his father has come back through Sam, then his deceased father is reaching out to return his love. Sam's father is very open with all of his children, and he and Sam seem to have a very good relationship. Now folks, this one is a bit different because this is not documented. The next two here are a couple of stories I found online by people who say that they can remember their past lives. So this one is the story of Mark. And this reincarnation story comes from Mark, who was able to remember his past lifetime events in a fully awake state. His memories were spawned by riding a horse when he was just three years old. I clearly recall what I did over 1,000 years ago, who I was with, and more importantly, my motivations for doing this present lifetime. When I was three years old, my dad put me on the back of a horse where I thought to myself, I used to be really good at this. It was then that I also remembered about a woman I loved. When I was about eight years old, I remembered this woman. It was something like out of a dream. I say like a dream because I left my body and went there. In a sparkle, we merged our minds and reenacted an event from the 700s. Later in life, we met in a most spiritual way, dated briefly, but then high maintenance kept us apart. After my death of the last lifetime, I pondered for a while about doing another. There was a great spiritual oppression urging me to claim another body. Now a note on astrology. I feel it's BS. I was set to be born in March to a family in Denver, but I changed my mind. The woman by my side inquired why I did that. I don't recall answering, but I helped another soul I deem worthy to tune into that body in Denver so he could claim it. I am the same person personality, but I was born a different time than March. The confused idea that this reality somehow conflicts with Christianity is also flawed. I have been a follower of Christ from the first century. In the Father's words, it's good to remember. And then next story here is about a past life cut short, longing for a soulmate. This story brings up an interesting aspect of reincarnation. When people come into a new life, they often seem to bring many of their previous preferences with them. This can include everything from food to music to places they like to live or feel a sense of belonging to. It is no coincidence that many people carry people preferences as well. People are part of soul groups, according to the research and case studies of Dr. Michael Newton and Dr. Brian Weiss. These groups of souls often reincarnate together as friends, family, co-workers, and so on. When one of the soul group members does not reincarnate this time around, there can be a sense of longing, even if you don't remember who it is. This is especially strong in the case of primary soul companions or soulmates. The following is a story from a gentleman who chooses to remain anonymous. 
Ever since I was a child, I've had this attraction to females with dark hair, and I never knew why. I figured it must be some embedded genetic preference built into me, like we all naturally have. I didn't know it actually pertained to something very important, something that's close to my heart, but forgotten. I also had this love for Hawaii, and never really knew why, until my first reincarnation revelation came to me through a dream, back in the early 1980s, when I was still a young adult. I recall a sunny beach scene, and some girl rushing to my side. She had long dark hair, pretty blue eyes, tan complexion, and wore flowers in a way like clothing. She was very sad with tears, and then I faded away. It seemed like I was on some Hawaiian tropical beach. When I awoke from the dream, it was so real that I just couldn't get over it. I had wondered what had happened, but I had no clue. At the time of my dreaming, I really didn't know what soulmates were, or what their importance is. I didn't even know her, the girl in the dream. So for the longest time, I would call her my dream girl. Eventually, I gave her the name of Tylina. She would represent love, beauty, and truth to me. After having experienced such, I would start to really look for someone like her, but with no success. I even drew a pen and pencil likeness of what she basically may look like on some poster paper, but it unfortunately got destroyed by someone I entrusted it to. Over time, I began to wonder about my previous life and if it might have been in ancient Mayan times or in Hawaii. I believe Tylena was the daughter of some ruler or king, and that before I came along in the past life, there was some guy who wanted Tylena, but she didn't want him. I think it was because they weren't on the same wavelength and he was dishonest. I believe Tylena and I had this deep spiritual connection instantly, and that everyone could feel the love glow between us. What wasn't good is that Tylena must have really been so caught up into this blissful love we had together that nothing else mattered, at least to the point that she didn't warn or tell me anything about the other guy who was still stalking her. So on the eve of our wedding, some girl who was helping to prepare our wedding had a hidden jealousy of wanting me for herself. The price of my rejecting her would be betrayal, as she'd tell the guy where exactly we were. I went to join Tylena on the beach, and Tylena went to go get something. While she was away, the guy I knew nothing about came at me out of the blue and struck me with a spear or something, of which I wasn't strong enough to overcome. It all happened so fast. I ended up down on my back and weak from the deadly inflicted wounds. My jealous murderer must have fled the scene before Tylena returned. As Tylena was kneeling over me in tears, she spoke in a way that she did not want me to leave. Trying my best to capture one last good look at her before I became no more, I let her know I'll always love her and for her to never forget. Now here's another astounding one for you folks. And this one is a boy's memory of being a Soviet soldier in World War II. This story comes from the aunt of a boy who remembers his name and past life in Russia during World War II. The aunt and boy's mother were able to bring closure to the boy in this incredible story. I babysit my six-year-old nephew Matthew, or Matty as we call him, every Tuesday and Thursday of the week since my sister shifted to a new schedule. My nephew likes to draw some odd figures, and he was always so busy making them. The same figures over and over, and he always kept it, like it's something important. Sometimes he would still be awake at 2 a.m. We know it's not ideal for a child to stay up that late, but every time I would tuck him in, he would sneak out of bed to draw. My sister once caught him murmuring something she couldn't understand while he was sleeping. I have too. He was shouting, so I would wake him up every time it happened. We've been very aware of that. Because every time it happened, the next day he would return home from school, drawing dead people on the ground, 
and people that looked like they were in a war, and he would post it on the wall in his room. I asked him, what's that for? Then something tells me I'm not talking to my nephew anymore. Stay out of my business. My men were dying at that time. Don't you know how this failure feels? Matty is somewhat very well-mannered and has a bit of a temper on him when we put away his art materials. Sometimes he's just a normal kid who just likes to watch cartoons and ask for snacks. I stole one of his drawings and showed it to my boyfriend. We found out these odd figures have a latitude and a longitude. My nephew is just six, and he hadn't even learned a thing about navigating a map like this. I just figured this is a map that resembles Russia. My sister had him consulted to a therapist. He asked my nephew some questions. Therapist, what's your name? Maddie. Ivanovsky. Therapist. What are you? Maddie. Polkovnik. We didn't understand what that meant. By the third question, we were not able to hear furthermore because the therapist said Maddie seemed to be uncomfortable answering these questions when me and my sister were around. So we waited. After the therapy, the therapist explained. His theory was that Maddie was a colonel in the Soviet Union. We showed him drawings of the map. He said it was a map of Frankfurt, Germany, and Russia. He explained that the colonel was being interrogated, and they stabbed him right on his left thigh. Coincidentally, Maddie has a birthmark on his left thigh. He also said his death was very brutal, but didn't explain in vivid detail. He suggested to let him draw his thoughts off, and there's nothing to worry about. Now me and my sister assume that he lived before, so that also explains why he's so mature. Me and my sister, along with Maddie, traveled to Russia for three days and toured around the Red Square. Maddie was pointing to places and told us what happened at the time, the time he was alive and that apparent past life. My nephew said he wanted to go to Medvedevka. We were not familiar with this place, so we got a ride. What shocked us was that Maddie pointed out the directions. We were surprised that when we stopped, we were by a cemetery. My nephew was emotionless. He was finding something, and I told my sister to leave him be. We found Maddie there, talking to a grave which said, Polkovnik Yevgeny Ivanovsky, 1878-1952. Me and my sister felt deep sadness when Maddie cried and touched that grave. By the way, folks, I looked it up. For those of you who do not speak Russian, that answer Maddie gave the therapist when he asked him, What are you? Polkovnik. That was the USSR's equivalent of a colonel. Now, folks, on to the next case. And I heard of this case quite a few years ago, and it was unsubstantiated. Now, I'm going to give you all the details in this case, but uh, just bear in mind that this one doesn't have the caveat that some of these others do. Three-year-old leads police to a man who killed him in his past life. A three-year-old boy in Syria's Golan Heights region suddenly became the center of attention after he revealed that he was murdered with an axe in his previous life. The boy of the Druze ethnic group was born with a long red birthmark on his head. According to Druze beliefs, birthmarks are related to past life deaths. When the boy was old enough to talk, he told his family that he had been killed with an axe blow to his head. His father, several relatives, and elders of the village decided to visit neighboring communities to see if his past life identity could be established. Dr. Lash was invited to join this group, as it was known that he was interested in reincarnation. When the group arrived to the closest neighboring village, the group asked the boy if he recognized this as the location of his prior home. The boy told the group that this was not his past life village, so the group walked to a second village, 
where the boy again reported that this was not where he had lived in his previous life. When the group reached the third village, the boy stated that this indeed was where he had lived. The sight of his past life neighborhood stimulated memories, and he was now able to name several individuals from his past lifetime. At this point, the boy now remembered his own first and last name in the past incarnation, as well as the first and last name of his murderer. A member of this community, who had heard the boy's story, said that he had known the man that the boy said he was in the past lifetime. This man had disappeared four years earlier and was never found. It was assumed that this person must have come to some misfortune, as it was known that individuals were killed or taken prisoner in the border area between Israel and Syria for being suspected of being spies. The group went through the village, and at one point the boy pointed out his past life house. Curious bystanders gathered around, and suddenly the boy walked up to a man and called him by name. The man acknowledged that the boy correctly named him, and the boy then said, I used to be your neighbor. We had a fight, and you killed me with an axe. Dr. Lash then observed that the man's face suddenly became white as a sheet. The three-year-old then stated, I even know where he buried my body. The boy then led the group, which included the accused murderer, into fields that were located nearby. The boy stopped in front of a pile of stones and reported, He buried my body under these stones, and the axe over there. Excavation at the spot under the stones revealed the skeleton of an adult man, wearing the clothes of a farmer, and on the skull, a linear split in the skull was observed, which was consistent with an axe wound. Dr. Lash reported that at this point, everyone in the group stared at the accused murderer, who admitted in front of everyone that he did indeed commit this crime. Next, the group went to the location where the boys stated the murder weapon was buried and began digging. The axe was found. Dr. Lash asked the Druze group what would become of the murderer. He was told they would not turn him over to the police, rather they would impose a suitable punishment. What ultimately happened to the murderer was not reported. In 1998, Dr. Lash related this case history to Trutz Hardo, who practices past life regression in Germany. Mr. Hardo subsequently included the story in his book, Children Who Had Lived Before, published in 2005. Compared to reincarnation cases researched by Ian Stevenson, M.D., and his colleagues at the University of Virginia, in which the testimony of multiple witnesses was carefully documented, this case lacks evidentiary detail. The names of the subject, murderer, and witness are not provided, which makes this case anecdotal. Further, the primary researcher in this case, Dr. Eli Losh, died in 2009. Still, it is a fascinating case, which does follow the pattern of several research by Dr. Stevenson. Well, my friends, I found several of these cases to be excellent as far as, at the very least, the possibility of reincarnation. Now, here's your final case. I won't say I saved the best for last, but it's definitely one of the more intriguing ones. So this is the case of the Sri Lankan rebels. The early lives of Johnny, Robert, and Nanana Dasa. A.K. Nandadasa, Johnny, was born in 1945 in Unawatuna, a coastal town in the district of Gale at the southern tip of Sri Lanka. He was known to all as Johnny. His father was Pedrick Apahumhami, and his mother was Sisohami. Johnny had a brother named Nanadadasa, who was three years younger than Johnny. In 1946, Akimana Palayarunge Robert, who went by the name Robert, was born in the same town. His parents were A. Dharmasena and Mary Nona. Robert did not have a good relationship with his father, 
but he was inseparable from his mother. Johnny and Robert became best friends in childhood. They played cards, excelled at swimming and diving into the sea, as well as climbing trees. They were both born to very poor families. Johnny and Robert were Buddhists, and they worshipped at the temple at Yatagala. Robert was the more devout of the two. Johnny obtained work in a factory in the city of Gale that made frames and eyeglasses. Johnny acquired a primitive house in the jungle on Ramasala Hill, not far from a cliff overlooking the sea. Robert left school while in the ninth grade, and he took temporary jobs as a mason and a laborer. He later worked in the battery factory. At the spectacle frame factory, Johnny befriended a man named Amarpala Hetiarachi. Both Johnny and Robert traveled to the village of Pididinia, 14 kilometers north of Gali, to attend the wedding of Amarapala and his wife, Yasawethi, which occurred on October the 20th, 1966. The couple lived in Pididinia, though Amarapala worked at the factory in the city of Gali. The Rebellion of 1971 Due to the divide between the wealthy and the poor, a movement towards rebellion brewed in Sri Lanka. In the district of Gali, Johnny, a gifted speaker, became a rebel leader, with Robert his second in command. Due to its remoteness, Ramasala Hill became a rebel training ground. Food and supplies were stockpiled in Johnny's house. Robert was in charge of acquiring weapons. From his experience in the battery factory, Robert learned how to make homemade bombs. Their bombs were tested at the beach of Utawatuna. The rebellion was launched on April the 5th, 1971. Rebels raided police stations at night when officers were asleep, to neutralize the police and to seize weapons. Woman with a radio in Yadehimula. A woman Johnny and Robert knew, who lived in Yadehimula, was one of the few people in the area who owned a radio. Using the cover of darkness that nighttime afforded, Johnny and Robert would visit the woman to listen to news of the rebellion on the radio. Soon the police and the Sri Lankan army moved to quell the revolt. It is estimated that 1,200 people lost their lives in the fighting. In the district of Gale, Police and army surrounded Ramasala Hill. Johnny and Robert escaped capture by hiding in the caves and crevices between rock formations. Two weeks later, in mid-April 1971, the pair tried to leave Gale, but police captured them at the bus station. Police officers, enraged at Robert's ruse, returned to the police station where they beat Johnny to death. At one point, the police hung Johnny by his feet upside down. He died of the beating by 1 p.m. on April the 19, 1971. A few days later, gasoline was poured on Johnny's body, who was then set on fire, then buried. A little over seven years later, on November the 3rd, 1978, in the village of Pitadanaya, Amarapala, Johnny's friend from the factory, and his wife, Yasithwe, celebrated the birth of fraternal twin girls who were named Savante and Shiromi. Savante was born with a birthmark measuring two centimeters by one centimeter on the right side of her abdomen, just below her ribcage corresponding to Robert's gunshot wound. No one else in the family had such a birthmark. When Savante started talking at two and a half years of age, she said that she had another home where she had a father, mother, and sister. She described how she had to hide in a cave with Jonia. Savante said that she and Jonia had been arrested and that their hands were handcuffed behind them. Savante would place her little hands behind her back to demonstrate being handcuffed. She said she had been shot while trying to escape by leaping into the sea. When describing the incident, Savante pointed to the birthmark on the right side of her abdomen, which corresponded to the location of Robert's gunshot wound. Savante said that her mother was Mary Aka. Aka means older sister. You may recall that Robert's mother's name was Mary Nona. Ian Stevenson posited that Mary Aka was a nickname of Mary Nona. Savante asked to be taken back to her home. 
Savante said that in her past life, she knew a man named Karune Uncle. Mary Nana later confirmed that one of Robert's collaborators in the insurgency was indeed called Karune Uncle. Savante told her mother, Yasathwe, that they would hide in the caves in the dark. She also said that Sudanangi had once sent her clothes in a bucket. In fact, Robert had known someone who he called Sudanangi. When he was in hiding, the woman allowed Robert to bathe and wash his clothes, utilizing her well. Robert would leave his clothes to dry, and Sudunangi would later take or send the dried clothes to Robert. Once she did indeed send Robert's dried clothes in a bucket. Savante also stated that Sudunangi saw her as Robert being taken away by the police. In fact, Sudunangi had witnessed Robert, handcuffed, being led away by the police after his arrest. Savante would talk about a temple called Yatigala that she would go to. Again, you will recall that Robert was a devout Buddhist. When the twins were three and a half years old, their mother took them to the temple at Yatigala, where Savante noticed that it had been rebuilt. Indeed, a new wing had been added to the structure at the temple. For the first time, she stated that her name used to be Robert. This occurred in May or June of 1982. Amarapala and Yasathwe, the twins' parents, now realized that Savante was recalling the life of their friend Robert, who had attended their wedding. Word of Savante remembering a past life as the rebel Robert spread through the community in Pitadanaya. A schoolboy studying in Pitadanaya wrote to his family in Unawatuna, where Robert had lived, of these past life memories. In this way, Robert's family learned of Savante's statements. On July the 17th, 1982, Several members of Robert's family and friends visited the twins, who were now four years old. One of the first to visit was Johnny's younger brother and Robert's friend, Nananadasa. Upon seeing the visitor, Shiromi said, My younger brother has come. This was Shiromi's first statement about a past life. She then ran up to Nananadasa and hugged him. Nananadasa wept at this reunion and promised to return. Shiromi also made the statement that her past name was Johnny. The next day, on July the 18th, 1982, Nananadasa returned with his and Johnny's mother and sister. When they entered the house, Shiromi, and seeing Johnny's mother, Sisohami, exclaimed, This is my mother! Shiromi also called her Ama, which means mother. She then said, referring to Johnny's younger sister, This is my Nangi. Nangi means younger sister in Sri Lankan. Shiromi expressed much affection for her past life mother, Sisohami, while she was cool to Johnny's father, which reflected Johnny's relationship with his father as the father and son did not get along well. When Johnny's mother and sister got ready to go home, Shiromi repeatedly said, Take me with you. Shiromi wept as they left. Shiromi stated that they were traveling together when they were arrested. One witness said that when Johnny and Robert were arrested, one of them was already in the bus, while the other was still outside of the bus. Shiromi also said they were caught together. Two days later, when Nananadasa asked Shiromi for details of her past life, she described how she was tortured and hung upside down. Shiromi said she remembered seeing an upside-down picture of the Buddha while hanging by her feet from the ceiling. Shiromi was on the verge of tears in describing these past-life events. Significantly, Shiromi also remembered that something was poured on her body and that her body was burned. Again, you will recall the burning of Johnny's body occurred several days after his death. As such, the soul of Johnny, Shiromi, was able to observe the burning of Johnny's body from the perspective of a spirit being, as Johnny was already dead when his body was set on fire. Shiromi now recalled that she had been Johnny in a prior lifetime, and she recognized her twin sister as her past life friend, Robert. After this point, the twins frequently talked about the past lives they had together. For example, Shiromi would say to her twin, Your hands were also tied. Savante replied, Your hands were also tied. Can you remember our bus ride together?
On Ramasala Hill, the twins locate past life locations. Godwin Samararante, a research scientist, heard about the twins' past life memories through a newspaper report and decided to investigate the cases for himself. He visited the twins at the end of June 1982. Ian Stevenson interviewed the twins and families involved in the case in October 1982, with Godwin serving as an interpreter. On July 4, 1982, when the twins were about four years old, Godwin took the twins to Ramasala Hill. At the point where the road for vehicles ended, the twins were deposited on a footpath and asked to show the way to the homes of their previous lives. The twins made their way up the twisting and rocky path. Savante led the group to the spot on the cliff where she, as Robert, had tried to escape by diving into the sea and was shot. When Ian Stevenson traversed this route, he was amazed that Savante could find her way to the cliff, as there were so many rocks that in places, Stevenson could not even discern that a path existed. At this point, the twins were again asked to find their past life homes. Shiromi now swung into action and led the group directly to the ruins of Johnny's house on Ramasala Hill, which were located more than 100 meters away from the cliff where Robert had jumped into the sea. The house had, by now, largely disintegrated, though the foundation was still present. These examples of geographic memory are similar to how Barbara Carlin, you'll remember I covered her in a previous episode, at age 10, found her way to the Anne Frank house without directions, even though she had never been to Amsterdam before. Godwin also took the girls to Yadihimula. The woman with the radio in Yadihimula had heard about Shiromi and Savante's past life memories. When she saw the twins passing by, she said to them, Aren't you going to come to listen to the radio? The twins replied, We will come at night. Recall that Johnny and Robert would only come to listen to the woman's radio at night, when they would be hidden by darkness. Ian Stevenson was impressed with this statement by the twins. The twin girls both had phobias of people wearing khaki-colored shirts, which were the kind of shirts worn by police in Sri Lanka. They also became frightened whenever they saw the jeep with policemen or soldiers in it. This is similar to the phobia that Barbara Collin had of men in uniforms, including policemen in the reincarnation case of Anne Frank, Barbara Collin. While playing, both girls enjoyed making bombs out of clay. When Ian Stevenson asked the twins, what was used to make bombs? The twins recited nails, paper, tins, wire, broken bottles, which indeed were used by the rebels in making homemade bombs. Both had a habit of putting sticks in their mouths and pretending to light and smoke them. Johnny and Robert had both been very heavy smokers. Savante and Shiromi both behaved as if they were still men. For example, they insisted on urinating while standing up. Both liked to wear t-shirts rolled up from the bottom to expose their bellies and parts of their chest as did Johnny and Robert, but was unheard of for girls. Both liked to climb trees and ride bikes, which was not done by girls in that era. Both twins said they had beards, and they would even stroke their chins pretending that they were stroking their beards, which Johnny and Robert did indeed maintain. They also asked their older brother to prepare cards so that they could play a game. Recall that Johnny and Robert often played cards together. Masculine behavior was observed in the twin girls even up to when they were in their 20s, except that they learned to urinate sitting down like most women do. As adults, the twins would visit Nananadasa, Johnny's younger brother, in Unawatuna several times a year, and in reciprocal manner, he would drive to visit the twins in Pitadinaya. The twins and Nananadasa would exchange gifts on these occasions. All three families involved in the case, that is, Johnny's family, Robert's family, and the twins' parents, accepted these two reincarnation cases based on recognitions made by Shiromi and Savante. The twins' parents noticed that they had never talked of the lives of Johnny and Robert at their home. In fact, 
Their father, Amarapala, stated that he had completely forgotten of the deaths of Johnny and Robert until the twins started talking about them. Keep in mind that over 10 years had passed since the date of the deaths of Johnny and Robert, April the 19th, 1971, to the point in time when the twins started to talk about their past lives in 1981 and 1982. As such, since their parents had never spoken of the rebels, Shiromi and Savante did not learn about the lives of Johnny and Robert through normal means. Of note, Amarapala, the twins' father, was not particularly happy that his daughters had been notorious rebels in their past lives, as Amarapala was not a supporter of the rebellion. Amarapala's brother held a high position in the community, which led Amarapala's family to support the rule of law, not insurgency. Savante had the same build as Robert, and Shiromi had the same build as Johnny. There was a similarity in Shiromi and Johnny's facial features. Robert was shorter, stockier, and lighter skinned than Johnny. Similarly, Savante, or Robert, was shorter, stockier, and had lighter skin than Shiromi, or Johnny. Nananadasa, Johnny's younger brother, noted a similarity in facial features between Johnny and Shiromi. Now, I've got a bit of a summation of some of these cases, folks. Variations and variables in reincarnation type experiences. Perhaps the main variable is the age of the person who has a reincarnation type experience. Those who do are mostly children between the ages of 2 and 6. After the age of 8, the experiences tend to fade away and, with few exceptions, vanish entirely in adolescence. The manner in which the reincarnated personality has died is yet another variable. Those who suffered a violent death seem to be more frequently reincarnated than those who died in a natural way. Reincarnation stories tend to be clear and distinct in children, whereas in adults they are mostly indistinct, appearing as vague hunches and impressions. The more widespread among them are the deja vu, recognizing a sight or a happening one sees for the first time as familiar. The sensation of deja kanu, encountering a person for the first time with a sense of having known him or her before, also occurs, but less frequently. Whether reincarnation stories convey verifiable information, evidence, and proof about places, people, and events has been tested in reference to eyewitness testimonies and birth and residence certificates. The experiences often turn out to be corroborated by witnesses as well as by documents. Sometimes even minute details correspond to real events, people, and sites. Vivid reincarnation stories are accompanied by corresponding patterns of behavior. Behaviors suggestive of the reincarnated personality appear even when that personality was of a different generation and a different gender. A young child could manifest the values and behaviors of an elderly person of the opposite sex from their past life. So what are we left with here, folks? The hardcore believers and skeptics on reincarnation are mostly entrenched in their views, and it's doubtful that many will change their mind unless 100% irrefutable evidence is produced on either side of the divide. Many skeptics already say this exists in the fact that the function of all our thoughts and consciousness expire upon brain death. Believers of reincarnation state that the soul or some other device of conveyance must exist to convey these memories as they are too numerous and too difficult to know to have any other explanation. I will save the arguments against the existence of reincarnation until I've further wrapped up the series, most likely at least another episode or two. As always, my personal thoughts on the matter is not what we traffic in here at the Paranormal Sun. I will say this. The people who claim to believe in reincarnation are not the ones calling people gullible, moronic, superstitious, uneducated, or another score of names. If science was proved to be wrong about this, it wouldn't be the first failure of man's purported genius, and it will not be the last. 
As always, folks, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Art Bell, which is that a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter does reside within may not be reached.